turn it over to our speakers. Great, thanks Daniel very much. Uh, good afternoon everyone. I am Michael Porter and I am co-chair of the Boston Bar Association State Tax Committee together with Alexis Morrison Howe. Alexis and I are very happy to have you join us today for the annual Massachusetts Tax Update. We have a great group of speakers, including the new Commissioner of Revenue, Jeffrey Snyder. I'm sure you'll, I'm sure you'll enjoy their presentations. On behalf of the BBA, Alexis and I want to thank all of the presenters for participating in today's event. We really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedules to do this, and thanks very much to all of you. I, in particular, I want to mention how supportive of the BBA, the Department of Revenue has been over the years uh, with respect to this event in particular, but many others as well. So a, a shout out to the department and a special thanks to you. I want to quickly review today's agenda. Uh, first, we will hear from Commissioner Snyder and get his perspective as he assumes leadership of the department. After Commissioner Snyder's remarks, we will have a panel discussion on corporate excise and sales use tax developments. We will then conclude with a final panel discussion that will provide a litigation update on Massachusetts tax cases. I want to mention at the outset that any opinions offered by presenters from the Department of Revenue do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Revenue itself, so please keep that in mind. And as Daniel mentioned, if anyone would like to ask a question, there's a, a Q&A icon on the bottom of your screen that will allow you to type in a question. Uh, so please feel free to do so. We have a tight schedule, but we'll take as many questions as, as we're able uh, during the course of the seminar. Uh, with that, I want to introduce uh, Commissioner Jeffrey Snyder. Mr. Snyder has several decades of senior level leadership experience in the financial industry and previously served as the Deputy Commissioner of Administrative Affairs and Acting Chief Financial Officer at the Department of Revenue from 2016 into 2019. In the private sector, Mr. Snyder worked as the Director of Equity Sales at Wells Fargo, where he led the company's research, research sales and sales trading operations across the United States and London. Previously, he was the Global Head of Institutional Sales at Bank of America and Deputy Head of U.S. Equity Sales at Citigroup Global Markets. Most recently, he was the Managing Director for a global executive search firm. Mr. Snyder holds a Master of, a master of uh, a Business Administration and a Bachelor of Science from Cornell University. So with that, I'll turn it over to you, Commissioner Snyder. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate it. And thank you for inviting me to address this meeting of the Boston Bar Association. I'm honored to have been given the opportunity to return to the Department of Revenue and serve the Commonwealth as its commissioner. As mentioned, I am returning to the DOR, having spent two and a half years working as Deputy Commissioner of Admin Affairs and for a time as the acting CFO. During that time, I truly enjoyed my tenure and developed a deep respect for the work ethic, passion, and mission-driven people at the DOR across tax, child support, and local services. I can only hope to continue the great efforts of the former Commissioner Chris Harding and then Acting Commissioner Kevin Brown, who led the department during what has been a very difficult time before my arrival at the end of March. As said, I spent most of my professional career working in leadership roles at City, B of A, and Wells Fargo. Recently, I've had the good fortune to teach accounting and finance to young adults as an adjunct professor, including a semester in the People's Republic of China, where I taught Chinese national students accounting and believe it or not, federal income tax in the US. 
I'm also a non-practicing CPA, having received my credentials back in the early 80s. That's when work papers were carried in leather satchels and not on laptops. Let me turn to the current day. As you all know, we just recently released May tax revenues, and although well below benchmark, which was established pre-virus, there were certainly line items that provided upside surprises versus expectations. Overall, May year-to-date was down about 8% below benchmark, and this was mostly due to the deferrals associated with the income tax filing and payment requirements. The shortfalls in income tax, sales and use, and corporate and business were partially offset by a surplus in withholding. Withholding is reflecting the effect of the current unprecedented levels of unemployment benefits being distributed as part of the CARES Act. Anecdotally, between the stimulus payments that have been paid and unemployment, our Child Support Enforcement Division has been able to distribute millions of incremental dollars to deserving families via their intercept program. It's one of the only positives of our current situation. As we are all painfully aware, the effects of the pandemic are broad, deep, and far-reaching. We're in a recession, unemployment is at all-time highs, and the path and length of the recovery are currently unknown. My prayers go out to everyone affected by this terrible situation. The state municipal budgets are at great risk. We will all see the extent of that damage depending on the level of further federal support. Except for a few folks coming in to sort and distribute mail in our tax processing unit, we have been operating primarily on a remote basis. Our call centers are up and running. Volumes are light though, given the delay in filing season, but we expect that to change shortly. The tax processing unit is operating at reduced staffing levels due to the safety guidelines, but we are continuing to process refunds and are effectively current with our incoming returns. The auditors will be back shortly in the field, having done everything possible while working from home, and our collection efforts continue apace. We've received about 3 million or so returns, some 20% less than last year, and have issued over 2 million refunds so far, about 15% than last year. The year-to-date income tax payments associated with returns and bills are over $2 billion less than last year, and that is a result of the filing date changes. We are working with the Executive Office of Administrative of Administration and Finance on a reopening plan that prioritizes our employee and customer safety and will be prepared when the time is appropriate to return more of our people to their offices. One question that I have received in the past I think is worth addressing. People wanna know what the vision, the goals, or our objectives are for the department. They wanna know what we're trying to achieve. When asked this question, three things kind of come right to mind. First of all, is the issue of what I will call succession. Did you know that the average tenure of the DOR employee is well over 25 years? 
That implies we have to appropriately prepare for the drain in institutional knowledge and experience as folks retire over the next five to 10 years. That will include bringing in highly motivated talent at all levels. Secondly, we'd like to leverage the capabilities of our new IT system to continue to redirect our focus to compliance functions, specifically audit collections and resolution, versus what has been historical focus on processing. We've made significant progress on updating our business processes to optimize the new system, but I believe, as many others do, there's a lot more we can achieve. Thirdly, given the current situation, we have to navigate what is the new normal. This just doesn't mean incorporating new safety protocols and the increase in remote work, but also making sure that we address the human aspects of the effects that that remote work has on the culture of our agency, as well as employee satisfaction with their jobs. So with that, Mike, I will turn it back to you. Commissioner, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, and Commissioner, I'm sure this is gonna be a challenging time as we move forward addressing the, the revenue shortfall and the best of luck to you and others at the department in that, re in that regard. Uh, so Alexis, I'll hand it over to you to introduce the next panel. Hey, thanks Mike. And, and my name is Alexis Morrison Howe. Um, as Mike said, I'm, I'm co-chair of the state tax section. Um, and I also you know, wanna thank everybody um, for joining the call, it's, you know, it's, it's tough being in our new world of Zoom. Um, so I appreciate everybody coming out and, and um, joining us. Um, so our first panel, um, if, you've, if you've been um, to this event in prior years, we used to have three panels. Um, but in, in the Zoom world where we're only doing two hours, our first panel is going to be the, both the corporate excise um, and the sales use developments kind of together um, in one panel. Um, and the great part about that is that we have um, a lot of um, great people from the department and um, practitioners um, getting to join in, into one big panel. Um, we're gonna focus on corporate excise first um, and then some sales use development. So just to introduce our panel um, from the Department of Revenue, we have Rebecca Porter who's Chief of the Rulings and Regulations Bureau of the MassUR. Um, so she's responsible for ensuring that the state's revenue statutes are supported by regulatory and other guidance um, as needed and responding to inquiries from members of the legislative and executive branches regarding existing statutes and proposed legislation. Um, before becoming chief in 2015, Rebecca served as counsel in the Bureau and prior to joining DOR, she practiced at law firms in New York and Boston where she advised clients on the federal and international tax consequences of a variety of transactions, including private investment fund formations and investments. She's a graduate of Princeton and Columbia Law School. Um, we have Michael Fatale, um, who's the Deputy General, General Counsel at the DOR. Um, he was previously the Chief of the Right Rulings and Regulations Bureau, um, and before that he was a DOR Tax Counsel. Um, he's primary author of several state tax regulations numerous pronouncements and has litigated um, several high-profile cases, including Simpson, Sherwin-Williams. Um, he's an adjunct 
a professor at BC Law um, and has been a guest lecturer at Georgetown. Um, he worked in private practice before joining DOR and graduated from Columbia and BC Law. Um, Kevin Brown has been the general counsel of the Mass DOR since June 2004. Um, he advises Commissioner of Revenue on state tax regulatory and policy issues, litigation, legislation, and administrative law matters. Um, he's worked in the state tax field for over 30 years um, in both public and private sectors. Um, he's a graduate of Haverford College and BC Law. Um, he holds a MS in computer science from Boston University. Um, so then we also have uh, two practitioners um, with us uh, for these two panel, for this first panel. Um, Jason Zorfis, who's an executive director with ENY's state and local practice. Um, he specializes in Massachusetts taxes and other states. Um, his area of expertise includes income, franchise, and sales use taxes. And he advises clients in a host of industries, including retailing, manufacturing, um, and services. And he also represents companies engaged in high technology, such as software, electronics, and life science. Um, he's a graduate of Clark, um, Suffolk Law School, and BU um, School of Law for his LLM. Um, David Sheehan is a managing director at PricewaterhouseCoopers, who specializes in the area of Massachusetts state and taxation. Um, he has 30 years of tax experience spread between public accounting, government service, and industry. He's you know, also previously served as the Chief Rulings and Regulations Bureau at MassDOR, um, and he is PwC's Massachusetts tax specialist. So we have a, um, a great group of people, um, you know, really knowledgeable. So I will turn it over to the first panel um, to, to take it away. Thank you, Alexis. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, Rebecca's going to kick off our discussion. She's going to talk about um, the mass implications of the Federal CARES Act, as well as reviewing some recent guidance the department put out about the COVID-19 pandemic. And then Mike Vitelli and I can talk about some topics that have been inspired by the Nexus regulation that was promulgated this past October. So go ahead, Rebecca. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, as David mentioned, I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about the work that the department has been doing um, addressing some of the implications of the COVID-19 pandemic um, and, the, and the response we've been working on with respect to the Federal CARES Act. Um, very early on in the shutdown, we started getting questions from taxpayers about circumstances where a taxpayer who normally worked out of state but was now home tele, uh, teleworking because of the pandemic and questions around what the withholding obligations were with respect to employers in those circumstances. So if you think about the circumstances that you might have had um, before the pandemic, um, in terms of multi-state issues that Massachusetts might be looking at, um, I see sort of two circumstances that, that, were our, that were what guided us as we were thinking about these issues. So take Rhode Island, for example, if you have a, a Massachusetts resident who's working in Rhode Island for a Rhode Island company, the source state, Rhode Island in that case, has, has the right to tax the income with respect to the services performed in Rhode Island. Um, for that Massachusetts resident, all their income is subject to tax in Massachusetts, but they're eligible for Massachusetts credit with respect to the tax uh, paid to Rhode Island. And then on the other hand, if you have a Rhode Island resident working in Massachusetts, 
that income with respect to those services performed in Massachusetts is treated as mass source income and is subject to withholding in Massachusetts and, and presumably was also eligible for a credit in Rhode Island when that Rhode Island resident was filing their returns. Um, so we had two sides of this, of this coin to deal with. On the one hand was whether the Rhode Island employer um, who had an employee, a Massachusetts resident employee who was now telecommuting in Massachusetts, whether that employer had to withhold Massachusetts um, income tax on that, on that employee, contrary to how they would have been withholding prior, uh, prior to the pandemic. And then whether the Rhode Island employee that's now, that was working in Massachusetts, but is now working from home in Rhode Island, whether that individual um, is still subject to Massachusetts withholding, despite the fact that they're now working from their home in Rhode Island. Um, we had several conversations with neighboring states in those very early weeks. And there was agreement among those states that the result that everyone wanted to get to was one that was not going to impose additional compliance burdens on employers. Um, and ideally, would maintain the status quo of, of, of what the withholding um, scenario looked like before the pandemic. Um, but, but the question for all of us was how to get there. And at the time, there was some discussion of possible um, individual agreements with specific states, but Massachusetts decided not to go that route and to issue guidance that would be more broadly applicable in all cases as opposed to on a state-by-state -state basis. Um, so we adopted an emergency regulation back in April to address withholding. And effectively what it says is that for the Rhode Island resident, in my example, who's telecommuting, we're gonna continue to treat the income received with respect to the services performed for the Massachusetts employer as mass source income. And likewise, in the case of the Massachusetts resident employee who was previously working in Rhode Island, um, that Rhode Island employer does not have to withhold with respect to the Massachusetts resident's income now that they're telecommuting in Massachusetts. And in addition, that employee is, is still gonna be eligible for a credit for the Rhode Island um, income tax paid despite the fact that that individual was working in Massachusetts. Um, at the same time, we realized that in addition to withholding, there were nexus consequences or potential nexus consequences that people were concerned about um, with respect to having individual employees in a state where they might previously not have had a physical presence. Um, so we, we issued TIR 20-5 simultaneously with the withholding regulation. Um, that TIR explains, I think, in a little more um, plain language what the, what the withholding regulation was doing, um, but it also addresses the sales tax nexus and corporate excise nexus implications um, of having an employee in, a, in Massachusetts due to the due to the pandemic. And it takes really the same position that we took in the regulation, which is that, um, you know, if at least during the time of the emergency declaration in Massachusetts, if you have an employee in the state solely due to the pandemic, um, we will ignore the presence of that employee for 
both nexus and apportionment purposes. Um, the TIR also addressed the paid family medical leave consequences of that as well, because uh, the initial interpretation of the paid family medical leave statute that the department had taken in conjunction with the Department of Family Medical Leave was that um, it was the location of the employee that dictated whether that person was required to make contributions or whether an employer was required to make contributions on their behalf. Um, so we took the same position in terms of ignoring temporarily the fact that that person may have been in Massachusetts or may not have been, been in Massachusetts and look to where they had been performing services prior to the pandemic. Um, now, the emergency regulation expires in July. It was promulgated in, in April and it's only good for three months. Um, that means that we're coming to a point where we're gonna have to think about what the next step is. And um, that's a question that we are actively interested in feedback from um, certainly from this community, but from taxpayers and and practitioners. Um, you know, one option is simply to extend the emergency regulation. That's, you know, not, not always the, the best course of action, but we certainly could do that. But I think, you know, we're starting to wrestle with this question of what does it mean going forward to be home solely due to the pandemic? And we're seeing more and more businesses shift to more of a telecommuting model? And um, is it going to be more difficult to figure out what's driving the decision to keep an employee home? Um, you know, so those are, those are the issues that we're, that we're sort of beginning to think about now is what those nexus and withholding rules should look like in the next phase. And when we get to some version of a new normal. Um, Maybe I'll maybe I'll pause for a second there, Mike, before I go to the CARES Act TIR. Are, are we are we getting any questions? I don't see any questions, Rebecca. So um, I, I get I think you know your comments are very thoughtful. I think the big question is, as you've already mentioned, is what happens after the emergency mm -hmm. is is over, but companies are still not comfortable having their employees back in the office really with no intention of making it a permanent arrangement. Your, your point is well taken. Some, this, may be the new, this may be the new normal where people do telecommute. And I'm sure there's gonna be some of that. But there are also obviously gonna be situations where companies, uh, they understand the emergency is over, but they're still not comfortable having 100% of the workforce in. And so they encourage people who can work from home, stay home for the time being and, and that sort of thing. So uh, that, that I think is gonna be a challenging Right. Uh, matter for the department yeah. to consider. I mean, the reality is that we still have a statute on the books that says that where the individual is performing services matters. Right. Um, you know, so that's that's sort of where we struggle, at least with respect to to withholding and income tax on a um, on a non-resident. The nexus situation, I think, is a is a little different. There's there's maybe a little more wiggle room. You know, there's still the constitutional principle that the mere slightest presence is not going to trigger nexus. And, um, you know, perhaps that can be interpreted. I mean, certainly that can be interpreted in different ways and we can, and we can draw lines where we want to draw lines. Um, so, I mean, in that sense, 
the two conversations are not are not perfectly aligned because the rules governing them are a little different. Mm -hmm. right. We we did have a question come in um, on whether um, public health considerations are kind of driving what you know you're thinking from um, a guidance perspective, um, or you know how, how those two kind of go together. Um. I'm not sure I follow what, I'm not sure I follow the question. Um, public health concerns. I think uh, it's more of like, you know, is there kind of a, a, a concern about, you know, what's coming out of, of the governor's office in terms of guidance about when we should go back to work, when it's okay, that, you know, the phases we're going through in, in opening um, and, and whether that's kind of playing in at all. Um, to your, you know, your timing of saying, oh, we're going to extend it to, you know, phase four or something like that. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, we haven't talked specifically about whether the rules should change at each phase. Um, you know, it does mean that I think the administration is going to be particularly interested in our thoughts on moving forward, you know, possibly more than then they would ordinarily take an interest um, in our guidance. Um, you know, I will say that, I mean, to date, we've, we certainly haven't received any direction that, that our guidance on this should somehow be driven by the policies of the administration in terms of public health. But, um, you know, certainly I could, it's a good question. Yeah, I guess um, at that point, you want to turn to, to Dave? Um, well, I actually we, just, we still have the CARES Act. Oh, CARES I'm going to say just a, just a few quick words. I'm just going to say a few quick words about the working draft TIR that we put out last week and a plug for comments on that. Actually, the, the comment deadline is July 3rd, so we're still actively taking comments if people have any. Um, as is often the case with new federal laws, these days in particular, it feels like um, there, there are some 2005 code issues here, you know, on the, on the personal income tax side. I think as most people are aware, we are tied to the 2005 code for most purposes. There are some exceptions, but, um, uh, but in general, we're following the 2005 code. I think, you know, most significantly where this has come up is in the area of the PPP loan forgiveness. Um, we've gotten a lot of questions on that and had conversations with a lot of people, including legislators about it. Um, the, the CARES Act provides that that income is excluded from taxable income. Um, but under the 2005 code, I think, we just concluded that there's no way to get there. There's no way to exclude that income. So that means that if you have a small business that's a personal income taxpayer, Chapter 62 taxpayer, um, they're going to be subject to tax to the extent that that loan is forgiven, which will be different from the treatment of a corporate excise taxpayer um, because we follow current code for the, for, the, uh, for the corporate excise. So that income will be excluded for a Chapter 63 taxpayer. Um, thankfully, we felt comfortable concluding that the IRS payments to individuals, um, the, re the rebate payments, um, $1,200 or $2,400, and then I guess an additional amount for dependents, that those amounts would not be subject to tax. That was another um, area of concern for people originally. Um, 
they're, they're treated as an advance payment of a tax credit and therefore taken out of income tax, um, gross income for purposes of determining income subject to tax. So even under the 05 code, we were comfortable with that conclusion. Um, so at, at the very least, I think we were able to provide some relief on that, on that front. Um, but, but as I say, I'm certainly interested in, in people's thoughts on what we covered in the TIR. Um, both in terms of the conclusions we came to, of course, but, but also if there are other topics that, um, that folks think should be addressed in the document, I'd, I'd be interested in hearing that too. Great. Rebecca, I have a somewhat tangential question from your discussion on TIR 20-5, something that wasn't addressed. <clears throat> Massachusetts non-resident that's living in the state to be in a personal residence or short-term rental for health concerns arriving from COVID-19. Are there days here then counting as a day of physical presence for purposes of the statutory residency test? So they are, but I'm just wanting to know if there was a they got a break or not. So the, the document that we put out is focused on employment issues. Right. Um, you know, I, my understanding is that there are some states that have some kind of um, health exception um, when you're counting days, and Massachusetts is, is not one of those. So, you know, I mean, I think, um, I think it'd probably be risky to read the TIR as going broader than just um, with respect to telecommuting due to the pandemic. But... Um, yeah, I, I didn't read it broadly like that, but um, you know, I can think of situations where someone normally would be domiciled someplace else and for whatever reason has decided to stay here. And, and now they're counting days to see whether or not they're gonna suddenly exceed, exceed the limit. That's why I was curious. Well, David, just to point out, that would only be really relevant if the person had uh, you know, a permanent place of abode in the state. So I don't think the short-term rental scenario that you were mentioning okay. would be relevant. But if, if they have a permanent place of abode, which is one of the requirements of the statute for, you know, under the 183-day rule to be, be treated as a resident, then those additional days, if they chose to stay in the Commonwealth, the states in the Commonwealth, yes. Yep. Okay, thank you, Ken. So, unless there's further questions from Rebecca, we'll move on to the second segment of the corporation panel. Okay, so I'm gonna provide uh, some general background about aspects of the new Nexus regulation, as well as some other parts of mass law, and then ask uh, Michael Vitale for some commentary. Uh, as many of you may know, Michael is, you know, this is in addition to everything else I've already been told about him. You know, he's now the draft of the Nexus Regulation, author of a number of law review articles on Nexus, but I think he's also a member of the MTC Public Ladies 272 work group that is looking at um, revising the statement of information on uh, what activities are protected and unprotected uh, for purposes of Public Ladies 6272. So uh, the first topic. I'd like to look at is uh, the new bright line nexus test that we have in Massachusetts and the right to apportion. So 
So under the new, new regulation, Massachusetts will impose its tax jurisdiction over a business corporation if, if such corporation has uh, considerable in-state sales derived either through economic or virtual contacts. For this purpose, Massachusetts will presume that a business corporation's virtual and economic contacts subjected to the Commonwealth's tax jurisdiction when the corporation's Massachusetts sales to taxable year exceed $500,000. Mass makes that determination based upon the sales volume uh, using its own sales factor, sales factor sourcing rules. Now, if a corporation is required to report its income when it has income from business activity that is taxable both in Massachusetts and at least one other state, for purposes of determining whether a corporation is taxed in another state, Massachusetts applies a jurisdiction to tax standard. What this means is that a taxpayer is considered taxable in another state, if that other state's jurisdiction subject the taxpayer to a net income tax, regardless of whether in fact the state does or does not impose such a tax on the taxpayer. Making that determination, the apportionment of income regulation provides that another state has jurisdiction to subject the taxpayer to a tax with respect to a business activity if, under the constitutional laws of the United States, the taxpayer's business activity could be taxed in Massachusetts under the same facts and circumstances that exist in the other state. So with, with that type of background, I get to my first set of questions. Michael. And the first question is, uh, if you have a corporation based in Massachusetts and it provides professional services remotely to customers in other states, and all that corporation's property and employees are in mass. And, and more, if under the Massachusetts sales factor sourcing rules, more than $500,000 in service sales would be sourced to another jurisdiction. So basically, Everybody's in Massachusetts, but it's got service sales other places that exceed $500,000. Does that company have a right to a portion of Massachusetts? And if it doesn't, why? So, uh, so David, um, I thought maybe it might make sense to just back up before plunging sure. into that question. Um, I think uh, two or three times you referenced the regulation as being a new regulation, but in fact, it's not new. It was an amendment of a 1993 regulation that was vastly out of date. Um, uh, there, were, there were things that were referenced in the regulation that were no longer true. There were a number of case law and statutory developments that were not reflected in the reg. The, reg, the statutory uh, nexus authority in the state is quite broad uh, and the regulation had taken the position that it was to be construed to the fullest extent permissible under federal and constitutional law. But there were provisions in the regulation that were really at odds with that, just largely because they were no longer up to date. So when the regulation was updated to include the Wayfair principle, and it's worth pointing out, I think, that we were in the process of amending it even before the Wayfair case came down. Um, you know, we had begun the process of amending it and then Wayfair came down and if you're going to construe the statute to the fullest extent of the Constitution, then Wayfair really needs to be reflected in the regulation. Statute certainly would support that. So, you know, with that background, um, I think all you're really asking is whether the nexus rules that apply under the reg uh, work for, you know, purposes of what 
sometimes is called reverse nexus, you know, the right to abortion, throw back, throw out. They always have worked that way. Um, and there's no reason why they wouldn't work that way in the context of the new provisions that are in the reg, not all of which relate to Wayfair, by the way. Um, you know, there are amendments with respect to the independent contractor rules, for example. Um, so, you know, all of the new provisions um, stake out a position as to when a taxpayer is taxable. And that notion cuts both ways. And as you say, for purposes of reverse nexus, the relevant um, principles are in the apportionment reg in section five. So I think that answers your question. I don't know if there was a component to your question that, I, that I've missed. Nope, it's, it's relatively straightforward. So the service company would have a right to apportion, but if we had a slightly different fact pattern and all the corporation did was sell tangible personal property instead of providing services, so it had more than $500,000 of sales of its TTP into the other jurisdiction, it would seem to follow that that entity would not have the right to apportion unless somehow its website, you know, exceeded, uh, well, we can talk about that later, but you know, on its own, it would seem that it wouldn't have a right to apportion, but the service company would. Well, so um, are you are you anticipating our discussion of public law 86 272? Well, yeah, a little bit, yeah, but I guess I'll get to that later. If I just kept to the facts that I originally mentioned, if all I had was sales of $500,000 or more into another state, and everything else was in Massachusetts, under mass, mass rules, I'd assume they'd be protected under Public Body 6272 and wouldn't, wouldn't uh, be subject to a net income tax. Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just confused on the fact pattern, I think. Um, okay. So, um, you know, I would just simply say that the, the nexus rules apply both ways. Um, you know, there could be an issue with respect to Public Law 86-272, and it is possible that the 86-272 analysis should be different, I think, yep. uh, under the current rules. But I think we were about to get to that, and maybe- We will get to that, yes. So why don't we wait? Um, my, my next topic, though, before we get there, has to deal with um, Brightline Nexus and the application of the throwout rule. So we're still referencing the bright line test in mass of more than $500,000 of in-state sales. But this time we're asking how that test relates to the Massachusetts throwout rule. As you may recall, Massachusetts applies market-based sourcing to sales other than sales of tangible personal property. There is a thorough set of rules that I think you might have written, Michael, that discusses how, how to apply those, those rules. But for the sake of discussion, let's just assume that the sales are sourced to states where the taxpayer does not file a tax return and would not be subject to tax. The, the Massachusetts throughout rule provides that if a taxpayer is not taxable in the state to which receipts are assigned, pursuant to the market-based sourcing rules, then such receipts are excluded from the numerator and denominator sales factor. So, so here's the question. Does Massachusetts adoption of a bright line nexus rule mean that if a corporation sources more than $500,000 in service sales to a state in which it does not file a tax return, that such corporation is not required to throw out sales of its, out of its sales factor denominator because it'll be treated as you know, subject to tax there? Well, so again, I mean, I think it's just a variation on the question that you've already asked. Um, That's right. So the rules apply 
both ways. Um, the nexus rules apply both ways. And as I think you have said, that the, the Wayfair principle that's in the nexus regulation um, identified sales, whether you've exceeded the sales threshold, it's 500,000 is the sales threshold we're using by using the mass apportionment rules, right? So um, if you would be subject to tax and mass um, on those facts, then that's a circumstance where you would not be subject to fraud. If I understand your question correctly. You have perfectly. And I, I know these questions seems really straightforward and easy to you. And as we were talking about a day or so ago, um, I, I, you know, I, from a practitioner standpoint, I keep bumping into clients who sometimes who can't believe that that's the way the rules work. And to me, it seems that they do. And so just confirm it basically. Well, so it is, I mean, it's new, I guess one could say. Yeah. That's right. So I know I'm running out of my allotted time, but I do want to briefly touch upon uh, one more nexus topic, which is public law 6272 and the internet. And for those who, I guess, are uninitiated in state tax concepts, though I think most of the audience probably is, public law 6272 refers to a federal law that prohibits a state from asserting its tax jurisdiction to impose a net income tax over a corporation if the corporation's only activity in a state is the solicitation of orders for sales of tangible personal property where such orders are sent outside the state for approval and then they're, they're filled by shipment from point outside the state. Uh, sometime in the mid 80s, the MTC adopted a statement of information concerning Public Law 6272 that provided a list of protecting and unprotected activities that were basically asking, do these activities fall within the ambit of solicitation or not? Uh, Massachusetts prior version of the Nexus regulation included one of those lists. That list is no longer there. And I understand the reasons for the department in, in taking it out. Uh, that, that list was amended three times after the regulation yes. was promulgated. So it was well, well out of date, as was that, a lot of the other portions of the regs. So. Right. So the, this new working group that, that I think you're involved with, it, it, one of the things it's looking at is what types of activities when conducted by a business that operates a website that offers only for sale, sales of tangible personal property. When will those activities that it offers through its website um, be regarded as unprotected activities? And, and the type of activities that are listed here are when, say, a business readily provides post-sale assistance to an in-state customer via either electronic chat or email, that the customer initiates by clicking an icon at the business's website, or uh, the business might invite viewers um, in the state to apply for non-sales positions within his business, and they fill it out online and send it to the website, and they might apply for credit cards in the same way, and they put in their applications, or because we like, we like, like to talk about internet cookies, if the internet cookies that are on the computer or other electronic devices if those cookies happen to gather information that'll be used to address production schedules or inventory amounts. Those are all types of things that, at least in this draft document, suggesting that it would create nexus for the out-of-state corporation in, in Massachusetts. And I guess what I'm wondering about is uh, when Massachusetts, you know, the MTC puts this out eventually, is, is that Massachusetts going to 
nod and say we agree with certain parts of it? Are they going to do something affirmatively? I know it'll be an in-state discussion, but I didn't know whether this would bubble up just on audit or the DOR would issue something. I'm just looking for, you know, any thoughts you might have on that area, as well as what you think the likelihood is the MTC issuing the document as, as it stands. Okay, well, so I wanted to back up again, I think. Um, I did take part in this work group. Um, it it uh, was in process, I think, for over a year. Um, it was one of the more active MTC work groups, I think everyone would admit. There were something like 14 states that played an active role uh, in this uh, project. As you say, the MTC has these guidelines. Um, they date back to the 1980s. I think they've been amended four times, but they hadn't been amended in something like 15 or such, such years. So in some respects, the MTC faced the same dilemma we faced when we went to the to amend the Nexus reg, which is, you know, what do you do with these outdated provisions? We took them out. Um, they were outdated and, they're not, and they weren't ours, you know, to update. I don't even know how we would have updated the MTC guidance that we had in our own reg doing it ourselves. Um, you know, leaving aside the question about whether MTC guidelines belong in a state regulation in the first place. So, you know, they came to it in a vacuum and they came to it in a vacuum post Wayfair. And, you know, Wayfair says that when a business uh, is, has virtual connections in the state and makes money off of those virtual connections in the state, it's engaged business in the state. Well, you know, those virtual connections do all kinds of things. Um, they make sales. Certainly, I mean, that's what Wayfair was all about, but they do more than make sales. Um, you know, I was just thinking as I'm sitting here, I don't know where Zoom, the company is located, but we're using Zoom and it's right in front of each of us. And, you know, is what we're doing here with Zoom a function of business activity in the state? I mean, that's in some sense, the question. I mean, all of the things that a company can do through the internet in a state would seem to be business activity in the state. And not all of it would seem to be limited to the solicitation of sales of tangible personal property. Um, the MTC identified in examples, you know, eight or nine different things that they concluded were not the solicitation of sales of tangible personal property. Remotely fixing a product through the internet, for example, is one of the things that they have in the list. Um, there are a number of other things. And so they have not yet finally um, resolved whether they're going to adopt those guidelines, although it looks as if it's likely that they will. Um, they were voted up by the MTC's uniformity committee a couple of months ago, um, you know, without any real, without any dissent. So it's likely the MTC will adopt those, those amended, uh, that amended guidance in some form. Um, and what, Massachusetts will do with that guidance, I think remains to be seen. Um, I think you asked about whether, um, so back to your questions, um, yeah. um, whether we would need to adopt them, I think is one of your questions. And, you know, you and I had a discussion about this the other day. I mean, I think if we're going to utilize these principles, it might make sense. If any state were to utilize these principles, it might make sense for that state to formally adopt those principles. But I do think that it's worth remembering that the MTC is not the administrative agency that's in charge of construing a federal statute, nor is what they're about to adopt a model statute or a model reg that a state would have to adopt if they want to apply it. All the guidelines are 
is the MTC's interpretation of how the law works under Public Law 86-272. They get a lot of, um, um, you know, a lot of respect is accorded to what the MTC says. The process involves a lot of states. It's a fairly significant process. But whether those principles um, carry the day or not is really a function of whether or not the MTC has gotten it right. And if they've gotten it right, it doesn't necessarily seem like it matters whether a state has adopted it or not. I mean, it's just simply what the statute stands for. And I gave you the example the other day we, when we spoke of the, of the bulletin that the MTC put out in 1995, right. bulletin 95-1, which you, you said I may be wrong about this, but as far as I know, no state ever adopted it. And yet it, and, uh, and yet, although it was, what's that? Yeah, I thought Maine might have. Yeah, so although it was very controversial at the time, you, you'd look back at it now and say that it, it became the law and it probably became the law shortly thereafter. So, so the, better, the better view might be for state to adopt them. Uh, those principles, and, and it may well be that that's what we do, but I do think that, you know, one needs to pay attention to what, you know, current circumstances are in light of what the statute says, because, you know, the statute means what it means, right? So. Right. Okay. Uh, Michael Porter, have we received any questions? Because I know we're sort of ending our segment, time-wise. Um, there, no, there are no questions no in the questions. queue. Okay. I think we can we keep uh, moving on. Yes, we, we should move on to Jason and others. Hey, it's, I guess it's my turn. Um, Kevin and I are going to speak about two topics in the field use tax area. Um, one is about marketplace facilitators, and the other is about software as a service and uh, the Citrix case and some other sort of corollary issues associated with being considered to be selling software as a service. So we're going to talk about both of those topics. They're both kind of big topics. So we're going to try to stay very high level and see if we can cover them in the next 25 minutes or so. So on the first topic, marketplace facilitator, the marketplace facilitator rules, I'm going to give a little bit of background about how we got here for those folks who are not really familiar with these rules. And then attempt to give a high-level summary of how they work. They're a little complex and then uh, talk about sort of what they mean. Uh, so with that, I'm just going to sort of dig right into it. So a number of years ago, states started to, for sale use tax purposes, uh, impose uh, economic nexus rules for sale use tax collection, meaning that vendors who were outside of the state had no physical presence in the state, but had a certain level of sales in the state, um, were considered to have a sufficient enough connection under these state rules to be to require them to collect sales and use tax for sales made in the state. That seemed to run directly afoul of the Quill case, the landmark Supreme Court case that said you had to have a physical presence. Taxpayers were not too happy with those. Vendors were not too happy with those rules and they challenged the states. Um, and in a number of states, there were uh, some cases. They tend, to, the state courts tend to decide with the, with, the, with, the, with the states. And then along came the Wayfair case. Um, that was decided in June 2018, the Supreme Court ultimately decided to take this case. It's an economic nexus case. 
Supreme Court prior to that time had really avoided taking those kind of cases, but they took this case, um, and the case essentially held that you know, economic nexus rules were constitutional, effectively overturning Quill. And so at that point, by that point, most states had adopted these sort of Wayfair economic nexus rules for sales and use tax purposes. And uh, just to give you a little flavor about what was going on in Massachusetts, Massachusetts had adopted uh, regulations prior to Wayfair that was effective in October of 17 that required online vendors to collect tax. Hey, Jason. Uh, remote online vendors, yes. Jason, Jason yes. Could, you, could you lean in a little bit to your computer? You can't hear me? Yeah, we, we, I don't want to scare anybody by getting too close to the screen. No, no, lean right in. All right. Okay, is that better? That's better. Okay. So, as I was saying, the department promulgated a regulation prior to Wayfair that imposed the obligation to collect tax on online vendors, remote online vendors, and that was effective in October of 17, about eight months or so before the Wayfair decision. But in that regulation, which for people who want citations, that's 830 CMR, Code of Massachusetts Regulations, 64H, 1.7. And that in that regulation, without getting into all the nits and nats of it, basically said that these online vendors, vendors who sold stuff you know, through the internet, essentially, that they were subject to tax in the state, not because of economic nexus, but because they had a they were considered to have had a physical presence in Massachusetts, that enough to satisfy the Quill standard, and the physical presence that was established, according to the regulation, was that vendors were using software in the state, and that these cookies, as David mentioned, cookies were, were basically loaded onto customers' computers, and that was enough of a physical presence by the remote vendors to constitute a physical presence under Quill. And so the department took that position starting in October of 17. Um, Wayfair comes along, as I mentioned, in June of 18. Um, and at that point, too, states were also considering this whole thing about marketplace facilitators, right? And a marketplace facilitator is essentially somebody who operates a marketplace website who basically facilitates the sales of other vendors to its marketplace. So they, the, still the vendor is still the this other company, um, but the marketplace facilitator is basically facilitating those sales by, um, by running them through their, their website, let's just say, right? And so these online, these marketplace facilitators also, by the way, tend to make their own sales too, in addition to the ones that they facilitate for other vendors. So Massachusetts came along and issued a new regulation, and that's 830 CMR 64H. 1.9, and that was that was effective as of October of 2019, essentially two years later from the first regulation, and basically it extended the economic nexus rules, basically these rules to not only include remote vendors, but it also extended them to marketplace facilitators or remote marketplace facilitators. And so I'm going to now attempt to tell you how those rules work in a simplified way, they're a little complex, but I'm gonna give it a shot. So in order to uh, understand them, I think the best way to do it is to kind of understand the, some of the terms that are in the regulation, which really defines who the parties are, who the players are, and 
one of these situations. So there's essentially five key terms. There's the remote retailer, who, as we know before, is basically just a retailer outside the state who has no in-state contacts, physical contacts or contacts in the state. And then there are marketplace facilitators and there are marketplace sellers, okay? And so marketplace facilitator, as I said, is the, somebody who facilitates the sale of other third-party vendors and third-party vendors to make sales on behalf of these third-party vendors. These third-party vendors are called marketplace sellers. All right, and so there's two types of facilitators and two types of marketplace sellers. There's remote facilitators, and then there's in-state facilitators, and then there's remote marketplace sellers and in-state marketplace sellers. Obviously the difference between remote and in-state is the in-state uh, seller, marketplace seller or facilitator has sufficient contacts in Massachusetts to be subject to tax. Whereas a remote marketplace seller basically has no contacts with the state other than making the sale, making sales in the state. So with that, here are the rules. So for remote retailers, remote retailers are required to collect uh, the tax in Massachusetts on the sales they make in the state if they exceed $100,000 of mass sales in a calendar year. Remote marketplace facilitators have the same rules, so they're required to collect tax when their sales, their total Massachusetts sales in a calendar year exceed $100,000. And those sales, when I say total, mean not only the sales that they facilitate, but also their direct sales, so that they make themselves. And then last but not least, there's the rules for in-state marketplace facilitators. Now, they already are subject to tax, so their sales, direct sales into the state are, they have to collect. But for sales that they facilitate, then the trigger is that they have to have $100,000 of of these facilitator sales in Massachusetts in a calendar year to be required to collect the tax. And essentially under these rules, if the marketplace facilitator is obligated to collect the tax, it generally relieves the, the marketplace seller from collecting the tax. And there's a mechanism in there um, in the rules without getting into a lot of detail where the marketplace seller needs to get a certificate from the facilitator in advance that the facilitator is gonna be doing this and there are some other rules in the air about when the marketplace seller may be collecting the tax uh, mechanism to do that. So those were our, those are the kind of the rules. I don't know, Kevin, if I if I left anything out, but I think that's a good general summary. Um, just if you have any comments, you want to talk about the rules, about the revenue from them, just what your thoughts are about about these rules. Um, thanks, Jason. Well. Um, it, interesting as you go through all of the ins and outs of the um, the rules and um, you know the, the thresholds above which people have to collect if they're vendors or sellers. Vis-a-vis um, -vis marketplaces, I think we've had remarkably few questions, um, despite the complexity that you outlined. Um, your 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 average uh, marketplace vendor is not very close to a hundred thousand dollar annual threshold. They're well above it, and so you know worrying about how to calculate that threshold or who's in or who's out has really not been much of an issue. And and 
the main thing I would comment on is the, the relatively limited set of questions that has come up. We, we had a question with regard to uh, restaurant sales where, you know, there are third-party marketplaces, um, and we carved out an exception with regard to sales of meals from these rules. But that's really the main area where questions have come up, and, and there have not been that many. Um, I think the, 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 the more um, important, frankly, side of it is that financially or as a revenue matter from the state, um, it's been uh, a very timely adoption of the statute because um, since last October, and, and these are not official numbers, we, we try and track as best we can who's a, a, a marketplace such that we will, will follow the revenue associated. But we think we've gotten about $130 million of um, tax paid over by marketplace facilitators uh, since the rules were adopted in, in um, last October. I believe that figures through the end of April. Um, and you can only imagine that obviously in this sort of pandemic situation where there are more and more people buying um, through the internet, that, that that's it's, it's a very important um, uh, fact that we have uh, tax collection through, through those parties. So, um, it, it's substantially above what we had estimated it would bring in. And I mean, I'm only looking or talking about facilitators here, not about um, online sales, direct sales more and more generally. Those, those are harder to track. Um, so uh, it's been timely. It has, despite the complexity of, of you know, uh, the different parties and the different thresholds, um, I think it's pretty much a success story. Um, one of the few areas these days where we're seeing revenue come in uh, above what we anticipated. Um, and that's, that's the main thing I would comment on with that. Great. Um, Mike, Alexis, any questions before we jump into software as a service? We haven't gotten any questions, so I think go right ahead. Okay. The next topic that uh, Kevin and I wanted to talk about was software as a service, and that's another obviously big topic in sales and use tax. Um, and so again, I'll do a little bit of background uh, and then lead up to talking about the Citrix case and then some other sort of corollary issues associated with this whole notion of software as a service. So just going back in time, uh, back to pre-2006, Massachusetts at the time only really imposed the sales and use tax on pre-written software if it was delivered in a tangible format on a disk or magnetic media or whatever. It sounds like the dinosaur age at this point, but uh, the, the only time that this, the tax was imposed is, is if it was delivered in a tangible format. Um, and so at the time, uh, the industry was kind of changing and software vendors were actually basically providing software electronically to customers. They really weren't uh, uh, providing tangible copies anymore. And so it was, the industry was changing. And as a result, Massachusetts and most other states changed their laws to capture the, uh, the, the sale of pre-written software, canned software, um, if it was electronic. So in Massachusetts, the law changed um, and the definition of uh, tangible personal property chains to include the transfer, I'm just quoting from the statute, trans, the transfer of standardized computer software, including but not limited to 
electronic, telephonic, or similar transfer. So this concept of transfer is going to be an important one when we talk about Citrix, right? So the law changed, and then the, the industry started to change again some more, right? And what happened was the software industry started to uh, host software, pre-written software for their customers rather than send it to them electronically or send them deliver it to them in a tangible format. So that the software was basically hosted on the vendor's um, servers and customers would use it remotely. Um, and so that kind of created a really difficult sort of sales and use tax question because Massachusetts generally doesn't tax services. So if you uh, customer is acquiring or vendor selling an online, something online service, is it a non-taxable service, a professional service of some sort, or an information service, something like that? Or is it really taxable software as a service, sort of hosted software industry parlance? software as a service. So is it, or is it taxable software as a service where the customer is basically just using the software on vendor's servers? And so the Department of Revenue also changed their computer services regulation after the legislative change to say that the tax applied for fees charged for, quote, the use of software on remote servers. And, you know, the, the, the distinction or the but the, um, I'm trying to make a tax decision between what might be considered non-taxable services and what might be considered taxable software as a service is obviously highly factual. Uh, the Department of Revenue started issuing a bunch of rulings over the years. Um, and in 2013, the Department of Revenue issued a working draft directive, which I think is very good, which lays out you know, the rules for helping taxpayers, purchasers, consumers try to figure out whether these, these, these purchases are taxable or not taxable. Um, so Citrix comes along and they asked, asked the question, I should say, a letter ruling on their product and the department held essentially that it was taxable software as a service and without getting into all the details of what Citrix does, essentially they have a bunch of different products, but they all have essentially the same group to them. We are sort of a screen sharing platform. And so Citrix wasn't too happy with the ruling and they ultimately made their way to the appellate tax board and then ultimately to the SJC um, on this issue as to whether or not their product was taxable. So Citrix argued essentially two, made two arguments as to why their software really, they didn't consider it to be taxable. The first one was that they said that it was a service. It wasn't really, uh, it really, the true object of it wasn't really the software or the platform, but that it was really a service. Um, and the board and ultimately SJC disagreed and, and thought that the customers were basically the true object was that they were primarily looking for access to and getting use of this screen sharing platform um, and that therefore it was subject to tax. Citrix also made kind of an interesting argument that it had all these employees and that it didn't, the, the software, the, the system didn't operate on its own and therefore that was sort of an issue of, of Citrix using the software rather than the customer. Um, and the board found and ultimately the SJC agreed that yeah, sure they had all these employees who were doing all this work, but they were really doing the work basically to develop the software and maintain the system 
essentially to enable the customers to use it. So it was still the customers who were using it, even though they had all these employees that needed to make it work, but making it work and using it were two different things. And then the second issue, which I think is kind of the more interesting one in Citrix, was that the, the taxpayer argued, going back to when I was reading the definition of the, of the of tangible personal property, that there was an arguably no transfer because the software is sitting on the vendor's servers and therefore there's no transfer. Um, and, um, you know, the statute says that you have to, perhaps there's a, there needs to be some sort of a transfer. Well, the department argued and the board ultimately agreed. I mean, the department argued and the board and the SJC basically ultimately agreed that the regulation extending the tax to the transfer of rights to use the software, even though it was on the vendor servers was a reasonable interpretation of the statute and that they, in their view, the statute was broadly worded by, by including word late language, like including but not limited to or similarly transfers of the, the language of the statute was pretty broad and therefore there was effectively a transfer sufficient under the law to impose a tax on software as a service. So that's where we are today. Um, I guess, Kevin, uh, sure. So, so really two questions for you. One is, you know, these, uh, determinations are obviously very factual and there's no sort of cookie cutter way to sort of make those determinations. There's a working draft regulation out there, a working draft directive, I should say, that's out there. Uh, Citrix has been decided. Any thoughts about how taxpayers, consumers, purchasers, vendors can try to make these determinations? Um, and then a second question, which we can get to after, is sort of some of the implications other implications of being a software as a service company, for example, being a manufacturing corporation uh, and using single sales factor and uh, apportionment uh, sales factor sources. So anyhow, any thoughts first on the department's view about having helping taxpayers kind of get through making these kind of difficult tax decisions? Um. Well, I, I think the main thing is that we are um, re-examining the uh, computer product, industry and products uh, regulation. Um, there was a draft directive, as you referred to out there, uh, talking about when software was taxable or when it would be um, a part of a non-taxable service. Um, we had obviously known for some time that the Citrix um, litigation was in process and it didn't seem to be valuable to be putting out more guidance uh, pending that decision because um, you know the decision is what's driving these things. So now that we have um, the SJC's uh, view on, on at least the Citrix fact pattern and some of the legal issues behind it, I think it's time for us to re-examine the regulation and as opposed to um, reviving that draft directive that you talked about, I, I think put some of those uh, considerations and, and principles out by regulation. So um, you'll you'll be seeing that there's there's a project um, ongoing now, but but we're we're not at the stage of putting something out. I think uh, in terms of what. Uh, businesses or, or, or customers should do vis-a-vis -vis software is, I mean, there, there are some basic principles that I think are, are clear from this decision, um, or at least to me, they're clear. Uh, one thing is that if you're looking at whether uh, you have a sale of software versus a non-taxable service, um, it, if you want to say that a service is being provided, it needs to be something different from what the software does, you know? 
the, the software in itself can be said to provide a service. Um, if that were the case, then then software wouldn't be taxable, you know, notwithstanding our, our statutory language. So we did issue a series of rulings some years ago that were, you know, looking at those kinds of fact patterns and trying to draw a line between whether the services as described in, in, in the ruling requests were just something that the software did and uh, or was there some additional you know service or information or something that is non-software that is being provided and the software that was part of that, that transaction was really just secondary was not the object of the transaction um, this is a, a long-standing sales tax issue not necessarily in the context of software of course but in the context of tangible property generally if you are providing tangible property and some sort of service at the same time, well, at what point does the tangible property element prevail? Or is one, at what point is it inconsequential vis-a-vis -vis a professional and personal service that you're providing? And so really this question just fits into that, that framework in, in the sales tax. So I think that's the first point to note is that whatever the service may be, if you are characterizing a transaction as a service, it has to be something different from what, what the software is doing. Uh, and are creating a software, that's, that's not the service either. I mean, um, you know, manufacturers have employees who are expending labor in creating the tangible product and that nonetheless the tangible product is is tangible so uh, I think those are the principles um, and going forward I would um, you know look for the regulatory guidance that, that we'll put out and we'll obviously be looking for for comment on, on that but that, that'll be a process this decisions not very old yet Excellent. What about, we were talking a little bit, I mentioned a little bit about the sort of corollary mass tax issues associated with, you know, software as a service. So if you're, a, if you're considered to be software as a service, it gets into issues like being a manufacturing corporation, being required to use single sales factor, or being a mass manufacturer, getting the benefits of your software as a service company here in Massachusetts. Um, there are, there are, there's some sort of a correlation between those two, is there not? So, uh, any thoughts about, about that? Um, well, yeah, I think that, the, you know, for example, the, the manufacturing and R&D statutes have, you know, at the time were, were amended in parallel to the sales tax uh, right. when, when sales tax was expanded, such that um, if you were delivering electronically, that's the more obvious situation, um, the, you would not change your manufacturing status by virtue of, of, of some sort of intangible delivery process. And I think that there is a parallel uh, in, in this situation where, okay, now oh, we're not talking about the traditional loads as we're as this tax, and then that gets back to the, the, the product versus service question then um, yes, the company would be a manufacturer if it's, if it's creating that. So um, just hosting software does not mean that you're not a manufacturer that, that is providing that software to customers. Right, gotcha, yeah, okay. Um, Mike, Alexis, any questions? We're probably, I guess we've exhausted our time for our segment, but are there any questions out there? 
there is one question. I'll read it to you. Uh, it says, Kevin, how does online advertising fit into your framework of a service different from what the software is providing? The advertising regulation would seem to say this is a non-taxable service, but it may be entirely provided via automated software. That, that, that may be a little bit much to take on in, in this setting. I don't know if you have any immediate, immediate thoughts. Um, I think I don't know enough about online advertising to, to, right. to risk tackling that question. Yeah. I, uh, I, I don't know how it works. Fair enough, I, and nor do I, but I guess maybe that's food for thought as you move forward with the regulation. I actually, I guess I have, I have one question. Is, is the department, uh, while you're undertaking, you know, in, on the, in the wake of Citrix and with the regulation that you're thinking about issuing, are you still inclined to issue rulings, taxpayer-specific rulings on these sorts of issues? I know they're tricky, but there were a bunch out there, and, and it's been pretty quiet, you know, since then. I think the regulation is the vehicle we want to pursue right now. Um, I wouldn't, you know, rule out the possibility that we get an inquiry that we would rule on. Uh, but I, I, I think trying to develop principles that are broader guidance as opposed to on. I mean, we went down that road before. Is the point we issued a dozen you know, rulings. And I, I think that there's some clarity in that, but we also got feedback that they, you know, people didn't understand the differences between them. So um, I think proceeding by regulation is probably a better bet. Mm -hmm. But you, do we plans um, in that way to have, you know, multiple examples, like say the, the manufacturing reg goes through a, a bunch of different examples so that, you know, can kind of help tease out factual differences to help people make determinations? I think examples are very helpful in regulations and, uh, you know, a lot of our regs do include that. Um, the manufacturing examples have the convenience of all tying to cases, so we need the answers. Um, but, uh, um, but we've put out a lot of examples in other regulations like the apportionment um, as well, and I, I think they're very helpful. So, yes, we'll be trying to do that. Okay. Well, perfect. I, I think that wraps up our first panel. Thank you very um, much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, everybody. Um, so we're going to move on now to the second panel, which is um, the litigation panel, which we're going to be going um, through some of the major cases that have happened over the past year. Um, we have three uh, panelists for this. We have um, two from the Department of Revenue. We have Mary Kay Toy, um, who currently serves as Associate General Counsel of the Massachusetts Department of Revenue. Um, and in this capacity, she participates in policy and strategic development and is the acting director of the Criminal Investigations Bureau. Um, so beware of Mary Kay. <laughs> um, so prior to this role, she worked in the department's litigation bureau, representing the commissioner um, in matters for the appellate tax board with folks on sales tax cases involving software and electronic commerce. So, so you know, the things we were just talking about. Um, and she previously served as Deputy Attorney General in the New Jersey Attorney General's Office. Um, she's graduated of Rutgers School of Law um, and Eastern Nazarene. Um, our other panelist from the department is Thomas Condon. Um, Tom Condon's been the Chief of Litigation Bureau at the Mass Department of Revenue since 2003. Um, and prior to joining the department, Mr. Condon worked for a national accounting firm 
in uh, international accounting firm that respects tax departments has been with the DOR since 1988, starting as a hearings officer in the Appeal and Review Board. Um, he's a graduate of Stonehill College and Suffolk University Law School, um, and he earned an LLM from the BU School of um, finally, our practitioner representation on the panel is Phil Olson, um, who's a tax attorney focusing on state and local tax consulting and litigation. He has over 25 years experience litigating and resolving major tax controversies. Um, and prior to entering private practice, um, Phil served as a senior trial attorney and litigation supervisor with the Massachusetts Department of Revenue, um, where he represented the department. He's a graduate of Suffolk Law and Stonehill college. Um, so with that, um, so Phil, Mary Tom, take, take it away. Oh, and also, I guess before you start, um, you know, similar to prior years, we do have um, the materials summarizing, um, you know, the cases that we're going to be talking about that, um, you know, will be provided. Um, so you guys will have that as you know, a virtual handout. So um, take it away, guys. Thank you, Alexis. And uh, thank you, Mike, for inviting us um, and Alexis. Um, it's a pleasure to be here today. And I also want to thank um, Daniel Tillman and Jenna Kim of the BBA, who've been so helpful in putting this together. Um, so my job in getting things started for litigation is to just go over a few statistics and where things have been and where they're going uh, over the next um, few years, we hope. So the big picture is that big dollar cases are down over the last several years, and appellate tax board cases have been trending up. The number of cases have been trending up over the last few years. So um, the amount of, um, first of all, I'd say by way of introduction, um, the numbers I'm going to convey represent a 100% victory on potential collections and a 100% loss on potential refunds. Neither of those things are going to happen. We'll win some, we'll lose some, we'll settle a bunch um, and um, others will be withdrawn by the taxpayers or abated by DOR. So uh, keep the inventory of potential collection cases is about $271 million. This is an increase from last year at this time of 34 million, which is an increase of about 14% when potential collection cases were about 237 million. Over a six year period, potential collection cases went from about 639 million in 2014 to about 271 million a decrease of about 58%. The total number of cases at the board during this six year time period declined by about 28%. As I mentioned, um, ATB active cases are trending up over the last few years. Um, in 2018, uh, cases that involved only tax matters as opposed to uh, central valuation matters involving telephone companies and so forth um, were 255 cases. That was in 2018. 2019, 310. And um, as of May, about 360 cases. So 
moving up in the number of cases at the board. Almost half of the ATB cases, the 360 cases I mentioned, are valued at 100,000 or less. That's inclusive of tax, interest, and penalties. Turning to refund cases, the amount at issue in potential refund cases is about 120 million. That's a decrease of 181 million and about 60% from last year, when the amount for potential refunds was about 301 million. That's a number that we don't feel badly to see going down. Uh, there are 25 cases in inventory with potential amounts over, collection amounts over a hundred, over a million. Um, one more than at this time last year. And 11 cases with potential refund amounts in excess of a million as compared to 19 last year. Over a six year period, potential refund cases went from about 361 million in 2014 to about 120 million a decrease of about 67%. Almost 77% of the potential collection amounts are from 10 cases. Last year at this time, 90% of the collection amounts, potential collection amounts were from 10 cases. With respect to refunds of the 11 cases with potential refund amounts in excess of a million, almost 80% of that amount is from five cases. The department's also making progress in significantly reducing its inventory of smaller cases. And the board typically schedules all small claims cases, and those are cases valued for each tax period of $25,000 or less if the taxpayer opts to be under the small claims procedure. The board schedules those for trial within three to six months, and the taxpayer has the option of mediation before a, a board attorney. And most taxpayers have been choosing that option and we find that we're resolving these cases very quickly. Uh, a rough breakdown of potential collection cases in, in inventory, um, corporate excise, and it hasn't changed that much from this year to last year, so I'll just give this year's. Uh, corporate excise, about 56%. Financial institution excise, 8%. Personal income, 8% sales and use 24% and other penalties, estate tax and the like, about 4%. For refund cases, a rough breakdown is corporate excise of 64%, financial institution zero, um, sales and use 8% and other penalties, estate tax, et cetera, 18%. That's, all I have on statistics. Um, at this point, I guess we'll turn to case summaries and Phil will lead off with a uh, discussion of a domicile case. Thomas Kennedy, I think is the name of the case. That's the one, thanks Tom. Um, we're starting with the domicile case, um, Thomas Kennedy. And it's been a while since there's been a reported domicile decision. As far as I can tell, the last ones were in 2013. These tend to come in cycles historically and considering the current environment where the auditors are fairly much confined to their desks, this may be an area where you see increased activity uh, in the future. In this particular case, 
Mr. Kennedy had two strikes against him probably before he even got started because he was trying to establish a separate domicile from his wife. Uh, by all reports and through the testimony, a very happy marriage and family life, but it's an uphill battle to try and establish separate domiciles. There's been a couple of cases that have allowed it, the old Ryerson case, but that was a different situation where he was separated from his wife and moved to the Philippines. And then one of the more recent cases, Altman, uh, where he had health issues, um, was older than his wife. His wife stayed in Massachusetts to work, but traveled back and forth. And the board agreed with the taxpayer in that situation that a separate domicile was warranted under the facts. And we don't have any of those facts in this particular case. Now, every domicile case is fact intensive. It focuses on the center of the taxpayer's domestic, civil, and social life. So it's an exhaustive factual review. In noting a 45-page decision, the board conducted a very detailed factual analysis in this case. With respect to Mr. Kennedy's kind of domestic life, he and his wife moved to Massachusetts from Virginia when their children were very young. In the 90s, they raised their children in Massachusetts. Children went to school in Massachusetts. They built a significant, or they bought a significant property in Brewster, actually a 60-acre farmhouse on the water with a pool, a tennis court, a pony farm, a chicken coop. Uh, he built a indoor sports complex with tennis court, racquetball court, gymnasium, golf simulator. So I'm sure with respect to his children, that house was the coolest house of all the <laughs> friends. Um, he belonged to two country clubs. He had boats in Massachusetts. He was a sports fanatic. He had season tickets or luxury suites for all four major sports. So um, significantly invested in Massachusetts and he, and he certainly liked his, his toys. Um, with respect to business, a very successful businessman, software developer, started a couple of companies, one in particular called Back Office, which was significant during this period of time. His wife was his business partner. She worked with him. She was more kind of the management end while he was the technological end and together they were very successful. Um, with, and the, the business was located in Massachusetts. They bought additional property for the business in Massachusetts, parking, training facilities. So there was a, a major investment in the businesses in Massachusetts. Conversely, in Florida, he argued that a house they purchased in Miami was a private enclave where he lived a separate lifestyle from his wife. He, um, did not testify to significant activity down there. He liked to get away, liked to get away. He was a lover of Cuban coffee and restaurants, did not seem to have a significant social life other than, uh, other than visiting restaurants and such. His wife was down there. Um, one interesting point that came up and must have come up through um, direct testimony um, to, impress upon the board that this was kind of his 
separate man cave was that he pointed out that they the house was had suggestive artwork in the foyer so uh i'm not sure what the point of that was other than to to, to truly say it was a man cave and his own little hideaway but i thought it was a funny point that the board popped it in there but the board looked at miami and said what this really is this is your getaway from the stresses of business in Massachusetts. There's some minor business activity there, but you're really, you're just going off the grid for some quiet time down there to get away from your businesses, which are in Massachusetts. Everything else is in Massachusetts. So I, I don't, you know, based on the report and anyone that's tried a case at the board and seen the report, sometimes you wonder whether you're at the same hearing, but Based on the report, this seemed like a, a very difficult case for the taxpayer and the, the board ruled in favor of the commissioner. There was one interesting point in this case is that Mr. Kennedy had a CPA who he consulted and the CPA said, why don't you go to this website and check it out because it'll tell you what you need to do to establish a separate domicile for tax purposes. So he goes to the website and he's looking at the check boxes and changes his voting and gets a driver's license in Florida, does a couple of the ministerial things as the board refers to him, but nothing major. But considering that this man was worth hundreds of millions of dollars, you would think that he would invest the resources to get more sophisticated counseling for domicile change rather than going to a website and trying to check boxes. But it is what it is. Next case up, Mary Kay, VAS. Yeah, I'm going to talk briefly about VAS holdings. This case is a case that the board <laughs> ruled in favor of the commissioner on April 29th of 2019. Um, the parties have requested a, a fact uh, and finding report, and we've been waiting on that for a while. So we, in preparing what cases to pull out of the summary and talk with you today, we decided to pull this one out and talk a little bit about the issue that was presented. I'm going to keep it pretty high level because we don't have a report, so we don't know um, what the board has based their findings on. Um, but briefly, um, the issue presented was whether or not Massachusetts could constitutionally tax um, both for corporate excise and personal income tax purposes um, an S-Corp and its shareholders capital gain on the distribution of a 50% partnership interest. So the parties here are VAS Holdings, that's the S-Corp, and Cloud5 LLC was the partnership interest. Um, the taxpayers argued that they were not taxable in Massachusetts on the gain because they were not unitary under either the three hallmarks test, which of course is economies of scale, centralization of management, and functional, functional integration, um, or the operational function test, which asked whether or not the asset that was sold was used in the operation of the business or was an investment. Um, the commissioner conceded that VAS and Cloud5 were not unitary under either of those tests, but nonetheless argued that the capital gain could be constitutionally taxed by Massachusetts um, because the apportionment was based solely on Cloud5. That's the partnership, um, their payroll and property. Um, so a unitary relationship was not required. The commissioner also argued in the alternative that VAS and Cloud5 were unitary because VAS was entirely passive and derived all of its income from Cloud5. 
Um, as I said, both parties requested the findings mm -hmm. in the case, and we're still waiting on that. So we don't know if the board will reach the alternative argument. But we thought that was an interesting one to bring up. You don't see many unitary cases um, of late. There was a discussion in the brief about uh, international harvester and some discussion about a, a I guess somewhat recent 2016 case of Corrigan v. Testa in Ohio. So um, it was an interesting case. Next one up is Paul Lowry, which um, not the most exciting case, but I believe it is the only reported decision involving a state level tax for 2020. So we should include it. Um, the issue in this case was pretty straightforward. It's not been directly addressed by the board in the past, but it was whether or not the Texan, Texas margin tax qualified for the credit for taxes paid to other jurisdictions under chapter 62, section 6A. There was some, there was some quirky calculation issues when the return was originally filed. The credit was calculated incorrectly. They took the full credit rather than doing kind of the limitation um, calculation to account for the taxes paid to the other jurisdiction and not get too much of a credit. So that was done incorrectly, but during the course of the audit and the appeal, the issue focused on whether or not um, he should be allowed, or the Texas margin taxes, a tax that would be allowed under 6A. He had received his schedules from KPMG and his personal schedules did not include the Texas income or the tax paid by KPMG to Texas. But as I said, the issue was pretty straightforward. The board quickly concluded that the Texan margin tax is not a tax um, paid to another jurisdiction on account of any item of Massachusetts gross income. There were a number, which is a requirement of the statute, there, there were a number of Texas cases involving the margin tax where the Texas court said it's not an income tax, it's a tax on the privilege or right to do business in Texas. And probably more directly on point, the commissioner had issued a regulation, um, I'm, sure, I'm sorry, a directive in 2008, which specifically said that the Texas margin tax was not an income tax eligible for the credit. Taxpayer also was denied any penalty relief. The board said there was no authority for the positions that were taken and certainly did not see any kind of reasonable cause of good faith in maintaining those positions. And that takes us to Bay State Gas. Thank you, Phil. I've lost my connection twice, so uh, if I go down on this, you're up next on Veolia. I guess just the show must go on, so to speak. We'll, we'll just gaze at you for a couple of minutes if your sound goes down. Oh, man. <laughs> you don't want to do that. Um, anyway, Bay State Gas Company and Affiliates, it's a corporate excise case for the years ended December 31st, 2012 through 2014. Uh, the board decided this case in the commissioner's favor, and it's now at the appeals court awaiting decision. It was argued in a Zoom um, argument by uh, Richard Call of McDermott, Will and Emery, and Brett Goldberg of the Litigation Bureau on April 14th. Uh, the plaintiff, Bay State, 
provides utility services and engages in related business activities in several states, including Massachusetts and Indiana. Two affiliates sell natural gas and electricity to customers in Indiana. And account, on account of those sales, Bay State pays something called the Utilities Receipts Tax, or URT, to Indiana. The Utility Receipts Tax under the Indiana statute is imposed on the receipt of the entire taxable receipts of a taxpayer that is a resident or domiciliary of Indiana. Gross receipts for these purposes means anything of value that a taxpayer receives in consideration for the retail sale of utility services. So the question is in Massachusetts whether the taxpayer can deduct this URT tax on its corporate excise tax return. Massachusetts has defines net income. It's a um, fairly long definition, but the pertinent portion of the definition is uh, net income is gross income less the deductions, but not credits allowable under the provisions of the Federal Internal Revenue Code as amended and in effect for the taxable year. Deductions with respect to the following items, however, shall not be allowed. And one of those categories is taxes on or measured by income, franchise taxes measured by net income, and importantly for this case, franchise taxes for the privilege of doing business. And I say importantly for this case because that is what the commissioner argued in this case is that the URT was not deductible because it's a franchise tax for the privilege of doing business. Bay State maintains that the URT is a transaction tax and is deductible under the pertinent Massachusetts statute. Transaction taxes include, according to Bay State's appellate brief, sales taxes and property taxes. The taxpayer argues that the measure of the URT is receipts from the retail transaction and it does not have to be identical to a sales tax. The board held that the URT is a non-deductible tax under the Massachusetts statute. It really did not get into specifically what phrase in the statute it comes under. It basically said it's, it's um, on balance, the URT more strongly resembles taxes and then it quotes the statute, taxes that are not deductible but it doesn't get into the question of whether it's a transaction tax. It just basically says, well, I guess in, in effect it does because it's not included within this definition. The board based its conclusion on a provision in the URT that described the URT as a condition precedent to the privilege of doing business in Indiana in consideration of the operating provisions of the URT, which in the board's view, make the URT more strongly resemble the types of tax disallowed as deductions under the Massachusetts statute. Phil, I, mi I missed quite a bit of your discussion on Lowry due to computer problems, but I did want to mention that this case has a connection to Lowry. Um, the parties following the appellate argument and after Lowry came out sent a letter to the appeals court um, pointing out, initially sent, Brett Goldberg sent a letter and uh, 
the board in, as, board, as Phil pointed out, the board in Lowry specifically held that the te Texas gross margin tax was in substance, form, and purpose a franchise tax on the privilege of doing business, not an income tax. And although Lowry is a personal income tax, not a corporate excise tax, the question of whether the tax is on income or on the privilege of doing business is the same. So uh, there was also a penalty issue in this case that was not under appeal. It was not appealed. Uh, the commissioner had assessed tax under uh, one penalty provision and at litigation attempted to argue not only that penalty provision, but also a second provision. The board decided against penalties altogether saying to the commissioner, you were wrong to impose penalties in the first instance. And by the way, we're not going to allow you to change your theory on penalties this late in the game. So um, that's it on base state. I hope I made it through without a, an internet failure. And uh, I'll turn it over to Phil to discuss a manufacturing classification case, Veolia Energy Boston, Inc. Thanks, Tom. Um, Veolia Energy Boston is actually kind of the case that's in the materials is effectively part of a trilogy. There are two other cases, reported decisions for prior years that kind of come into play here. So just briefly go through all of them just to kind of end up where we were with the, uh, the case in your materials, which involved fiscal year 16. Years 15 and 14 were also appealed. Um, Basically, Vale Energy Boston, through a couple of related entities that in that point is irrelevant for our discussion. Um, the company owns and operates a district energy system network in Boston and Cambridge, which effectively manufactures thermal energy in the form of steam, which is distributed to about 250 commercial hospital, institutional, government customers in mostly the downtown Boston area. We've, and they in, in use the steam for heating and cooling, for power generation, um, sterilization, among other things. Vail Energy Boston has been classified as a manufacturer since 1989. So in the first case, fiscal year 2014, Veolia was classified as a manufacturer. They were taxed on some of their piping. And the statute that we're dealing with is 59 section five, in this one clause 16. And that statute says that in the case of a manufacturing corporation, all property owned by the corporation is exempt other than real estate, poles and underground conduits, wires and pipes. And that statute was put in place in 1936. So the question was primarily a case of statutory interpretation. It was, although the business was described, it was mainly whether or not the piping should be exempt as part of the equipment used in the, in the manufacturing process. And the statutory question comes into play because if you look at the statute on its face, it would seem to say that all this property is exempt except pipes, but 
the board and the SJC kind of went beyond that and looked at the legislative history of the statute as it pertains to systems like the one operated by Veolia Energy. And they went back to the 1800s, the whole gas light case came forward through the year of the statute 36, Boston Gas in 1956. And these cases describe kind of the, you know, energy distribution system. In those cases, gas coming through the pipes, yes, it's generated, it's distributed. And they all stood for the concept that this great integral machine and the component parts are all involved in the manufacturing process. And as such, in the opinion of the board and the, um, the SJC, the pipes were part of that great integral machine and were exempt under the statute. And I'm not saying that the, it's the wrong decision, but most state cases, many of them involve questions of statutory interpretation. And usually the first step is to determine whether the statute is ambiguous on its face. And you have to look to the plain language of the statute. And in this case, that analysis wasn't, didn't appear to have been conducted. They went right into the legislative history because the general rule is if the statute is clear, it's on, on its face and the language is unambiguous, then you stop right there. No further examination is necessary. But here they just kind of went right past that and placed great emphasis on the title of the act that implemented the statute which read that it was an act exempting the machinery of manufacturing corporations from local taxation. They focused on the machinery, uh, the word machinery in the act itself rather than the, the language of the statute. And then did the analysis about the great integral machine and concluded that the piping was part of that machine. In the second appeal, which was fiscal year 15, um, the 14 case was being litigated. Same issues were raised for 15. However, in property tax cases, the process generally follows what we see in the state side. It's a little, there are a couple of little pitfalls. Each year is separately assessed and separately appealed. And you have to pay the tax at the local level in order to perfect your appeal. Here, when the taxpayer was making the tax payment and sent it into the tax collector, within the jurisdictional time period, there was a little note in a letter to the tax collector saying, oh, by the way, we have this appeal pending, which may impact this, you know, has a direct bearing on whether or not this tax is gonna be due in the long run. And, but the statute requires a formal abatement application filed with the Board of Assessors. The city brought a motion to dismiss, which was allowed, and the board concluded that, you know, they could not piece that together and conclude that it constituted an abatement application within the meaning of the statute. Um, property tax can be tricky sometimes, and a lot of the time these preliminary jurisdictional steps are handled directly by the, the taxpayer. But this case was tossed, and that gets us to fiscal year 16, which is the case in the materials. Um, and by this point in time, this Boston lost the original case in 14 and would have lost in 15, except for kind of a little jurisdictional out for them. This time they challenged whether or not the process of manufacturing steam was manufacturing. 
they went right after it. Wasn't whether or not a component panel was part of it. Was the process manufacturing? Does the exemption even apply to them? So there was a, a great analysis to kind of walk the board through the process of manufacturing steam. Council for um, the appellant did a great job because it's a fairly complicated process. Simplified it, broke it down into the steps of drawing water from the MWRA, treating, purifying the water so that it was in a condition where it could be converted to steam through the boiler system, distributing the steam through the system, through valves, pressure gauges. The whole process was really spelled out well in it, in, in the case, and the board concluded saying this is a manufacturing process. They are transferring raw materials, the water, the fuel, the chemicals, into a usable thermal energy, which is sold to, and used by customers for different uses. So it's taking the raw materials and transferring it to another use. Um, so a, a, a good win for the taxpayer and a, and a good case to review, along with fiscal year 14. The opinions are very good resources if you want to get an understanding of that whole evolution of the great inter integral machine concept or you know, what the board looks for in kind of analyzing a manufacturing process. Um, so three cases, good wins for the taxpayer and uh, and that is the Lord of the Rings version of the Bayola Energy Boston cases. Um, as we start, I know that we're coming up on our time. I wanted to give a couple updates. Um, the last case I talked about, we're waiting for a report. I wanted to talk about a case where it's been brief, but we don't have a decision. So each year we hit you with cases a little earlier and earlier in the pipeline. Um, the last panel discussed manufacturing classifications with software providers. There is a case pending at the board and Akamai Technologies. Um, Akamai, if you're not familiar, is located in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, I won't because, like I said, there's no decision yet. I don't even know if I want to get into too much of this case, but I want to just very high level give you what was um, in your packet. And you can see the issue that's presented. Um, the taxpayer argues that it's entitled to be classified as a manufacturing corporation for 2010, 11, and 12 is what's pending at the board um, because it claims it develops and sells remote access standardized software in the software as a surface service model. Um, as such, the taxpayer posits is entitled to use single sales factor. Um, as I said, it's located in Cambridge, so this is a refund opportunity for them. Um, instead of the three-factor apportionment formula it used on its returns originally for those years. Um, the commissioner has argued that Akamai is not entitled to the manufacturing classification because what it provides is a global delivery service for internet, um, internet content delivery service, um, and it doesn't sell its software to its customers. The commissioner cited Akamai's dealings with its customers, its billing model, website, marketing materials, things of that nature. Um, the parties litigated this case at the board in a four-day trial that was concluded on December 4th of 2019. The briefing is done and now we're waiting for a decision. So that's something that's in the pipeline that will be interesting to see what happens. Um, and then I will again give another update on what we used to call the MPU cases. Um, now I think I'm going to call it the sales tax apportionment cases or so software sales tax apportionment cases. 
um, of course, because if you're familiar with this or if you've been um, to this seminar in the last two years, I've talked about the case and there's been some twists and turns. So your update now is that this case is pending at the appeals court and the commissioner um, filed a notice of appeal in January and just recently filed our brief in that case. Um, for those of you who may not know about the case, it involves a claim by three taxpayers on behalf of a purchaser, Hologic, um, for a refund of sales tax that was paid on the various software transactions. Um, in the case, there was no multiple points of use certificate provided at the time of the transaction or at any point. Um, and the other provision of the of the regulation for apportionment at 15B. The purchase of certification was not followed either. Um, the board concluded that the regulation didn't bar apportionment. <clears throat> However, because a logic had paid sales tax on an entire purchase price and sometime later informed the appellants of its intended and actual use of the software in multiple locations, Hologic also provided data that showed the percentage of use outside of Massachusetts thereby adhering to the regulation's substantive guidance regarding appropriate apportionment methodologies. So this case is continuing. As I said, it's pending at the, appellate uh, at the appeals court and perhaps we'll have a decision. I think um, the next brief will be due sometime in August. So the case will move on and then maybe by next summer, we'll have something else to report. So we just wanted to give you a brief update on that. I think we were going to go to Tom if he's connected. Yes, I'm unmuting. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so the um, the last portion of our program, at least the litigation, was to just uh, give you some idea of cases that are were on which we're awaiting decision from uh, either the appeals court or SJC or even the appellate tax board. And unfortunately, there isn't enough time to go through these matters in detail. There are summaries of the cases in the materials. So I'll just tell you, um, mention a few of the cases. And um, Mary Kay or Phil, if you want to jump in on any of these, uh, please feel free. The first is New Singular Wireless. It's a sales tax on telecommunications services case for the periods November 25th. 2005 through September 2010. The appeals court heard oral arguments on this case on September 26th, and we're awaiting decision. Next up, Jordan's Furniture. Uh, submitted on briefs. Oral arguments had been scheduled for April, but as a result of the uh, health crisis, um, the court decided not to have the oral argument, so now we're awaiting decision on that. It's a Massachusetts sales tax case concerning the Massachusetts sales tax holiday weekends of 2010, 11, and 12. And um, I noticed in reviewing, in preparing for this, that we discussed this case last year. So hopefully uh, by next year, we'll, we'll be telling you about a great win for the Department of Revenue. I know I'm not supposed to say that. I couldn't help it, though. Um, next case, David Pogorelk. It's a personal income tax case. And uh, this case is 
uh, was also submitted on briefs. It had been scheduled for oral argument in April. Um, so we await a decision on that case. Bay State Gas Company, which I uh, discussed, um, argued via Zoom on April 14th, and the court has that under advisement. There's an estate tax case at the um, SJC for which we're awaiting a decision. It was argued on February 10th, 2020. It's M. Christine Schaffer as executors, executrix of the estate of Adele Chuckrow. And it involves a uh, qualified terminal interest property or Q-tip issue. Um, there are a number of cases on appeal that have not been fully briefed yet. Uh, one is Oracle USA, Oracle America Inc. and Microsoft Licensing. And the commissioner filed his uh, brief on May 28th and Mary Kay just mentioned that case. Christopher Libertini is another case and this for a relatively small dollar personal income case. This case has been to the appellate tax board. It's been to the appeals court. It's been back to the appellate tax board and now it's heading back to the appeals court. It involves employee business expenses and we're down to uh, mileage on trips between New York and uh, Massachusetts. So it's a fascinating case and uh, <laughs> look forward to telling you about that next year. Mark Peter Janko involves a jurisdictional issue. Um, taxpayers filed his initial brief. RCN Bicocom LLC, I'll just call it RCM. This is an appeal from the commissioner's central valuation of uh, the taxpayer's taxable telephone personal property for the fiscal years 2012 through 2014. Uh, this case is interesting um, beyond its, that issue in itself. The commissioner has cross appealed. Um, the commissioner argued that RCN lost its appeal because its first two returns, well, I won't get into the details, but it lost its right to appeal and so has filed a cross appeal on this matter. And um, that was filed on May 27th. No briefs have been filed yet. We're awaiting decision from the board on VAS, which uh, Mary, Kate, Mary Kay discussed. I have a daughter, Mary Kate. I'm sorry, Mary Kay. Uh, Akamai Technologies, uh, Mary Kay discussed. And something that isn't in the materials is James and Irene Reagan. Reply briefs in this appellate tax board case were filed yesterday. Uh, in this case, the commissioner argues that gains from the sale of chapter 121A urban redevelopment projects owned and operated by partnerships in which the appellants held an interest are subject to taxation. The appellants contend that the gains are exempt from taxation and even if they're not exempt, the basis in the 121A projects should have been increased by the amount of federal depreciation deductions. So the parties have, as of yesterday, all the briefs are in. So we await decision on that. And I don't know if Phil or Mary Kay have anything they want to add on any of those cases. I think one, one case that you might have skipped over or I might have missed it um, is Syncor. So Syncor oh, is yes, pending and it's currently being briefed. Um, and so that's one that Phil and I were both actually involved in, um, albeit tangentially, I would say, right? Neither of us was, were 
main counsel on that one, but um, it is pending right now with the appeals court and the commissioner's brief will be filed in the next couple of weeks. It involves whether or not um, litigation proceeds are properly attributable to Massachusetts. And it is um, a prior year. It's, it's not, it's for um, the 2011 and the 2013 tax years. So it involves a prior version of section 38F. Um, so that is also pending at the appeals court. Thank you, Mary Kay. The decision was for the commissioner below, I'm sorry, and the taxpayer has appealed. I also right. wanted to say that, um, Tom, every year you go through and you do this really great handout, and I hope people take an opportunity um, to review it because I know Tom does a lot of work in keeping it updated, and if you wanted to know what happens at the ATB in any given year, it's there, so I just really appreciate you putting it together and putting the time and update it. Well, that's nice that you're saying. It right I always... the last minute. <laughs> Updating it right until the last minute. Yes. Right to the very end. He reviewed and reviewed and reviewed. Right. You'll notice the headings on there that the um, summaries don't necessarily represent the views of the Department of Revenue. So, if you see something crazy in there, it's on me. <laughs> It's good that you pull all the adjectives out like glorious victory, and that's it. <laughs> well, Mary Kay, you took the you took the words out of my mouth. I, oh. I I really no, I appreciate it. It's a really great document, and honestly, I refer back to it throughout the year. So I I appreciate all your efforts in putting that together. And as Tom knows, I like to tease in my. I think the highlight of the the whole update are hearing Tom's stats. <laughs> about the cases at the board. <laughs> I love hearing those numbers for some reason. I find them fascinating. I know well, you're pulling my leg. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, are, are, you, are your comments concluded uh, for the litigation side? Yes. Okay, great. Well, that brings us to the end of our program. Um, I, I want to again thank all the presenters who took the time out to uh, be with us today. You guys make it look so easy, so effortless, but I am acutely aware of how much work goes into making it seem that way for the audience. So, uh, you know, my thanks to you uh, for, for uh, joining us and, and again, for putting all the time and effort uh, into this uh, seminar. Um, and with that, I guess we'll conclude unless, uh, Alexis, you have anything else to say? Are we good? No, thanks everybody. Thanks everyone for joining us today. We were really happy to have you. Have a great afternoon, what's left of it, and uh, everyone stay healthy and safe. Thanks so yeah, much. Yeah, thanks, Dan and Jenna from the BBA. Oh, and, and thanks so much, Jen and, Jenna and Dan, thank you. My apologies for forgetting, uh, for, for organizing this and helping us get it squared away. I know this is challenging in a virtual environment, so really appreciate your help. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Okay, thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you all very much.